Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of React Roundup. I am your host today, Paige Niedringhouse, and I am joined by our panelist, TJ Van Toll. Hey, everyone. And our guest is Colby Fayok. Hey, thanks for having me. Absolutely. So, Colby, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what what you're famous for? Sure. I wouldn't quite say famous, but uh, <laughs> I'm a UX designer and front-end engineer at a company called Element 84. Uh, they kind of specialize in bringing data to the cloud. And then that's where I step in, where I put user interfaces in front of that. So that's like JavaScript and React. But on the side, I do a bunch of educational content creation. So that's like uh, articles and videos and, and egghead instructor and talks. So that's pretty much me. Leveling up is important. I spend at least an hour every day learning ways I can improve my business or take a break and listen to a good book. If you're looking to level up, I recommend you start out with the 12-week year as a system to plan out where you want to end up and how to get the results you want. You can get it free by going to audibletrial.com slash code. That's audibletrial.com slash code. That's awesome. So what kind of, of egghead videos have you done? I'm familiar with the platform, but I know that they're really kind of ramping up lately and getting a lot of new content on there. Yeah, for sure. So my very first one was about mapping. Uh, so that's React Leaflet, if you're familiar. And that really just came from, that's the kind of work that I'm currently doing at my day job. And it's I thought it was very interesting work. And I was able to kind of bring that and teach other people how to use it because it looks intimidating, but it's not really as intimidating with the tools that we have. So that kind of is where I threw my first efforts behind. That's awesome. So what, like, how did you get into, I guess, educational content in addition to your, you know, your, your regular job? Uh, so it kind of started off uh, really at the end of last year. And I was just doing kind of writing on the side just for fun, like, just trying to get my thoughts out. But I didn't really start picking up until uh, the beginning of this year where one of my coworkers kind of helped me get past the imposter syndrome where I, I knew I wanted to write, but I was kind of just like, why me? Why talk about it? But he really helped me kind of understand that maybe somebody else will learn from my perspective. So that got me writing more. I kind of challenged myself to put out like an article a week. And that's what led me into playing with YouTube videos. And I've been enjoying doing that. So I've just been growing from there. And then doing the egghead videos. I'm just enjoying it. So I love seeing people learn these awesome tools and that's what keeps me going. So I see one of your talks is to put down the JavaScript, level up with the fundamentals of web development. So I'm curious what the inspiration for that one was. Was that just from work experience or seeing people like miss some of the fundamentals? Or I, I'm just sort of curious what spurred the, the creation of that one. Yeah, a little bit of both, actually. So I think generally, a lot of times you see people go like heads down right into like the most complex thing. And, you know, that's really cool because that's what motivates us. And like, I know that's what keeps me interesting because all this stuff is super fun and cool. But I, from a work perspective, uh, doing the hiring, I've noticed where people will come in and we do a code challenge where we have a simple mock-up and we're like, here, try to code it. And we don't really give any guidelines, just, you know, your favorite code editor, whatever you want to do. And people try to do React things, which is great if you know how to do React things, but then they end up struggling trying to just get the app going. So that kind of leaves them with nothing to talk about. So I think it's important to kind of focus, you know, have that motivation that keeps you moving forward, but make sure you're still building up those fundamentals. 
So are you a uh, like a CS degree engineer or are you more of a self-taught or coding bootcamp developer? Yeah, I'm actually self-taught. So I started in high school doing MySpace. Like it seems like a lot of people uh, came from the <laughs> same background, you know, the HTML and CSS overlays and such. But I went to school for design and didn't quite make the program. I did photography for a little bit, but this whole time I was doing code on the side just out of self-interest, whether it's my own personal portfolio for my design and such. And that's what led me to just keep working on it. I got my first uh, web developer job at a small ticketing company called Showclicks, and it just kind of took off from there. And I love it. it; keeps me motivated, and that's where, yeah. So I'm curious. Then, do you think like the reason that people miss some of these fundamentals is because is it because of learning materials? Is it because that you sort of instinctively think like React is the cool thing, so let me jump into that first? Or like I, I'm sort of curious because uh, my background too. Like I've been doing the web for forever, right? Since like GeoCities was a thing. So some of these things that like, I know under the hood, right? Like that anymore, like are considered not necessarily uh, logic everybody knows. Like the J, I have a really extensive knowledge of jQuery APIs and I don't know what good that's going to do me for the rest of my career, but it's it's sitting back there waiting for its you know time to shine. Occasionally I jump into a site and it, it pays off. So I'm curious if you think it's like what sort of background leaves people to leave some of these fundamentals behind. Yeah, that's really interesting. I haven't thought about that too much, but like just kind of thinking about traditional uh, CS degrees that I hear people talk about is like they don't usually, or at least they traditionally weren't doing a lot of web technologies. So, you know, there wasn't a good transition there. But at the same time, I've heard a lot of stories about how people go into boot camps. And I'm not trying to slam boot camps because I know there's great boot camps, but uh, some of the horror stories are like they just kind of throw you in and teach you one very specific thing and then it doesn't really help you in the real world too much. But then I guess maybe self-taught is interesting because you're kind of learning as you go. Kind of going back to jQuery, like that's how I started, like just copying jQuery snippets into my pages. That was the first JavaScript I wrote. And from that, I'm like getting interested into how to actually do these things without jQuery, just out of self-interest. And that's kind of what taught me to kind of go back to the fundamentals because I knew I could do things without it. That's what I was going to ask is because I actually went to a coding boot camp before I really before I got my first developer job. So I'm interested as a self-taught developer, how did you decide what to learn? Because that was one of the biggest things for me before I decided that boot camp was what I needed was just there were so many things that were possible. It's like, how how do you choose what to learn next and what to focus in on? Yeah, for sure. Uh, for me, it was just whatever I was interested in at the time. So I tend to focus less on just finding tutorials and going for them. And I'm more focused on what I'm what am I actually trying to do with it and I try to learn through that process it I feel like it helps me learn better and a quick segue into that's why I created this uh, this free ebook 50 react project 50 projects for react in the stack web with the idea being that I'm not going to walk you through the the projects but here is a project idea here's a project brief and here's even a design layout so you can just get heads down and trying to learn with like a real world project I I, I really think that learning by doing is a very good aspect of how to instill these things into your brain. Yeah, it reminds me, uh, a friend of mine, Cody Lindley, he puts together this thing called the Front End Developer Handbook. And I remember back in the day, he showed me an early version of this thing. And it was like 50 chapters or something like that. Because it talks about, oh, to be a front-end developer, you're going to need to know, well, you're going to need to know HTTP. And then you're going to need to know JavaScript and HTML and CSS. Oh, and there's there's frameworks, you should be aware of that. Oh, command line tools, definitely that. Oh, there's also editors, you should really know that. So I'd be curious if you had like a sort of like pragmatic take on like, 
like you said, things that you're interested in is, is that what you'd recommend people guide? Or do you have like a, like sort of a prioritization, like things that you really should learn early on to help? Yeah, I think it's really just out of motivation when you're first starting out, because you got to find something that's going to make you enjoy this. Like if you're just doing this just to get by, you know, chances are you might not end up enjoying it and it might not be the career for you. And that's not saying to, to deter people. Um, it's just some of the interest in doing this is going to help you grow as a developer and that motivation will help you learn more. So I think finding something that you just that just interests you. Like I know uh, some people will find like a gaming site where maybe they're super interested in a game. So they make a website around it, like things like that, projects that are going to keep you inspired to learn these new tools. So if we go back to putting down the JavaScript using the platform, could you like, do you have a couple like favorite examples you could pull out of that? I'd be curious, like to listeners, like any tips, like things they might be able to learn for times the platform might be a better fit. Do you mean a platform as for React? I mean, either or, like um, the platform is in HTML or CSS. We could go that route or React, however you want to take that. Sure. Uh, So I think one of the more interesting things that I give in the talk is the example of responsive text. So I think a lot of people, if they think of responsive text, like they're either going to think of media media queries, which is definitely one solution, or they're going to go into JavaScript if they want it to be like super liquid. But there's some CSS tools we can use like uh, viewport width, which you can set right on the font size that will scale really nicely with the browser. And that's going to give you a more performant solution, a simpler solution that's going to be easier to maintain. That way you don't have to go heads down right into the JavaScript every time. Um, I think another example is uh, responsive images and not regular images that are just kind of in line, but sometimes you need to add a background image for a particular image, right? Where the image element itself just doesn't work out for that specific area. What you can do is add a padding top or bottom with a height of zero, and that'll actually give you your aspect ratio and allow it to scale as a background image throughout the entire site. So that's another use case of not having to go directly into JavaScript where something like CSS is going to help you immediately. So I see that you're pretty big on the Jamstack. Is that what you get to use in your current day job as well? Fortunately for this project, yes. Uh, so <laughs> previous projects, uh, I was, I've was i been on like a Rails project, uh, which was my first Rails project. So that was interesting. But uh, yeah, with the, the current project I'm working on is a satellite tasking dashboard. And I was able to bootstrap it from Gatsby and we deploy it to S3. So it's pretty jammy. And then we reach out to the APIs for all the interactivity and the mapping, uh, which is part of that. That's awesome. So how I've been dabbling with Gatsby, I'm building my own website with it. How do you like deal with authorization or anything like that when it's, you know, when there's no real server behind it? Yeah, so we do that all client side. Uh, So we're particularly using uh, AWS Cognito and putting an API in front of that. I don't work with that stuff. Uh, I interact with the lambdas that reach out to Cognito. Um, But we make those routes client side so that before the person's able to actually go to it, we're going to make sure that they have an active session. Uh, We reach out to the API to make sure that it's still an active session with the token. Um, And really, that's just how we prevent people from doing anything unauthorized or visiting pages that they're not supposed to be. That's awesome. Did you have any prior experience with a lot of what you're doing now before you got here? Or was this a lot of learning on the job? For the Jamstack stuff, it was mostly just kind of self-interest before that. So like creating my own personal blog with Gatsby was uh, a lot of fun because some of these tools just make it a lot more uh, fun and easy to focus on actually building the website rather than writing your own Webpack config by scratch, which can be a pain 
uh, a pain. But yeah, like this is a lot of where my real world experience comes from, which I think is equally important than doing side projects because that's going to help work with a team. Like how are you going to actually break up the pieces of the work to not trip over each other during your work and prioritizing actually client needs as opposed to just something you want to do. So do you guys have some maybe some strategies or tips you could share for how you do break up that work so that you don't? Because that's something that I think most developers, myself included, our our team has stumbled on that more than once. Yeah, so I think componentizing is a large part of that. So we, we try to, we don't try to over-engineer, but we try to find good breaking points for where some of these components might fit. And because the components are each their own little buckets of uh, which is a tr- traditional re- React thing, but because they are their own little buckets, we're able to make sure that we don't have any merge conflicts when we're kind of working across each other. That and just kind of breaking up the different, we use Redux on our application, so be able to break up those buckets in logical uh, areas so that we, again, just have separation. I think it's just, you know, sometimes it's just trying to prioritize work that you're going to tackle so that maybe maybe if you have a backlog of tickets, you're not going to assign your whole team to go after the same area of the application. It's, you know, it's just kind of a little given pool that. So I see you also have a, a Jamstack handbook. So you've got a lot of stuff out here. Uh, I'd be curious just to take a step back on the Jamstack for people like me that aren't super familiar with it. Could you talk a little bit about like, I mean, even just what Jamstack is and I guess what I'd be more interested in is when you think it's a good fit, like why did you use the Jamstack for what you're building and what situations would you recommend to others? Do you think it's a good uh, spot to use it? For sure. So at the core of it, a Jamstack site is really just the a static site that gets dynamically loaded with APIs. Now, I, I think included in that now more recently is kind of edge functions, which Netlify just put out a solution. And I know like AWS uh, Lambda add edge functions, but that's kind of the uh, beside the point, but really it's just uh, putting something in static hosting that's going to dynamically, uh, whether it's pre-compiled or making those client-side requests. The thing that kind of got me into it was really just the tooling around it. Like I, I really like the simplicity of being able to dump HTML files into a bucket and serve that. It's just, there's something powerful about that and it feels safe because there's a lot of concerns you don't have to worry about when you're trying to render something from the server. And best of all, for a developer, if you're just kind of getting started and playing around with it, there's a lot of free solutions out there, which is always nice if you're just trying to learn something, like just putting something up on Vercel or Netlify. But yeah, like tools like Gatsby just made it fun. So that's what kind of drew me to it as well. And edge functions are, it's like serverless functions, like, like basically... JavaScript code that runs on a server somewhere that you don't need to maintain? Oh, yeah. I just kind of threw that in there, didn't I? So there's a difference between like the Lambda functions and Lambda Edge functions, where the Lambda functions are still going to be where the actual region you're hosting out of it comes from. Those aren't very good specifics. But the Lambda Edge, the differentiator there is that they're going to be ran at the CDN. So they're going to be at the edge where somebody's actually going to be accessing it directly from the CDN. So that's going to put it closer to the person. So you're not running it and making that big round trip back to the origin. And could you give some examples of like, I'm curious, what sort of logic are you running in those? Like where, like, I, I'm guessing auth is like one of those examples because you can't do auth like 100% client side, right? You need to hit some server somewhere. What are some other things you do just like to get like data or? Yeah, and I don't have a ton of experience doing this myself yet because traditionally when we're, when I've done any of that at work, we've used Lambda Edges and really we're, we used it for things like fixing routing because routing isn't baked in for single page applications in AWS. So uh, that was an easy way to alleviate that. 
But yeah, absolutely. Uh, that's one great use case. Another one that I think is great is personalization, where maybe if you need to do something uh, region to different regions, uh, one use case I can think of is e-commerce, where uh, when I worked at an e-commerce shop, we would have to give shipping updates depending on what country the person's in. So if somebody's in the United States or versus Europe, they're going to have different promotions. They're going to have different prices for shipping, where that's something you can easily tailor based off that location. So is there like, like for people considering... Jamstack versus like more of a traditional server model. Do you think there's like a tipping point at which like you're adding so much like backend functionality that, okay, at this point, like I, I might want like to actually have like a full server set up or do you think like Jamstack can scale such that just you just keep tossing JavaScript functions as you need it? I mean, I do think that it can keep scaling as much as you want. I think there's been some interesting conversations, particularly at my work, uh, where maybe people have felt that we kind of went with like the microservices and really uh, smaller APIs too early in the application development, where if we went with something like Rails at the very beginning, we might eventually move to microservices uh, and have those splits, but have more logical splits and where that comes from. But I think generally, if you need something that's going to be able to scale really fast and, you know, which is pretty much any website really, right? But it kind of reduces the burden of infrastructure by being able to have those sites served uh, statically reaching out to the APIs. Um, so I think that doesn't really specifically answer the question, but I, I think it's still going to be a balance depending on the needs. And, you know, you also want to consider what kind of expertise your team has. You know, I, I would hope that everybody can try to look at new tools and learn them so that they can try to implement them where it makes sense. But you also got to kind of realize if you have a team full of Rails developers and they don't know any JavaScript, that might not be super productive. Yeah, for better or worse, there are very few hard and fast rules in the software world. It'd, it'd be nice yeah. if there was just like, I mean, if you could give me an answer that just said in this specific situation, it's a good fit, that would be nice. But right. unfortunately, it, it doesn't always work that way. And I think it's interesting in the Jamstack world because kind of similar to what, if you're familiar with uh, the serverless world at all, you know, Jamstack and serverless play really nicely together, but they're not the same thing. But really we saw things like the serverless framework, which for a while was a little bit painful to work with, but now the serverless framework tool is really easy to get infrastructure spun up. Where I still think we're really early in the Jamstack lifecycle of developer tools and where I think that these are awesome as we currently stand, I think this is still going to keep getting better and better as there's just so much effort being put into making it more fun to work with these tools and put out really performant applications. So are there any legacy applications that you have to support at your current uh, job or are you completely getting to build like new stuff with the latest React hooks and, you know, the best that that the Jamstack has to offer? So the legacy project that I worked on was that uh, that Rails application that I talked about. The project that I'm on right now, I've been for about a year and it's the Jamstack app where it is a React application. So at this moment, I'm lucky that I don't have to maintain anything like that. But I've definitely had those struggles. Um, I used to work at a company called ThinkGeek, which was a Perl shop. And I had to use a templating language called Template Toolkit, which I never heard of before that job. And I think most people probably haven't heard of. But, you know, there's it's a, it was a really old code base because I don't think it was updated since uh, the time the company actually put out that website. So, you know, there's things they have to deal with, but it also kind of challenges you as a developer to become creative with solutions, in my opinion, where we might not have had all the APIs we needed to do some of the things we wanted to do on the front end, but we were able to kind of use them in creative ways to build awesome features for the people visiting the site. 
you're like the second person ever that I've talked to that actually knew Pearl or knows Pearl. So that's very <laughs> well. I won't say I know Pearl. Often. It was it was more along along the lines of like I knew enough to that I could make little changes in there and uh, not freak out the engineering team because when I was working there, it was like we had the UX front end team and then the engineering team, which would do all the Pearl work. So I knew enough that I could you know make small changes, but you know enough to be dangerous, but not enough to do full feature development. I say too, I worked for. A- hosting company that used Pearl pretty extensively. And I'd, so I'd put my, I, I can sympathize with what you're saying because I never knew Pearl. I would never tell anybody I knew Pearl, but I occasionally had to look at Pearl code and try to figure out what was happening. And Pearl is probably the single most difficult language to like mentally parse I've ever seen because like you can get so much done in one line of code, but like then you have no idea what that one line of code is doing or like anybody else looking at it. So that yeah, makes me I, feel I, better that it's not just me because I felt that way the entire time because I, I had worked with PHP a little bit before that with, you know, mostly WordPress and things like that. But so I felt like I could sometimes, but it just seems so complicated. And I don't know. So you said that you started out like doing jQuery snippets and that. How did you transition to, like, did you go through an Angular phase at all? Or was it just like React had come out and you're like, let's try something new. This seems like a good, you know, next step. Yeah, I actually didn't go through an Angular phase. I think I tried it once for like a, a code sample for a job interview, which went well, but I uh, I didn't end up getting on the Angular train. I think it just kind of grew out of interest. I saw there was a lot of traction on the React part and just kind of being able to play on the side. I was originally going to try to implement it in one of my work projects, but I knew I was kind of on the way out. So I didn't want to put React where nobody else on the team knew it. So we ended up going with, I think, uh, Handlebars, which is still a good templating language, but you know, a little bit less of a barrier to entry at that time when React was pretty new. But for the jQuery, I think I kind of started moving past jQuery by just understanding that you could do some of the things with native native JavaScript, especially as more features were coming out that jQuery kind of helped push uh, the native JavaScript to support. So that kind of led from like a, even though it was probably negligible performance, it was kind of like a trying to be more performant and more optimized with my code. That way I can develop that habit and keep doing it moving forward. And kind of learning the fundamentals of vanilla JavaScript is important for general work. Yeah, I completely agree with you there. I think that there's a lot less of a focus than there should be on, you know, jQuery can do everything, but it's also going to just load you up with code that you don't need as well. So actually understanding how to manipulate the DOM underneath it is definitely a benefit to anybody as a developer. Yeah, for sure. And I think that's, you know, another great example of something that's going to interest you and make it easy to kind of get into the field because jQuery had a really nice or has a really nice API that can help people do cool things with JavaScript. But as you kind of grow and realize that you can do even more powerful things uh, without jQuery, I think it helps people, you know, develop those skill sets, which help transition them into more, uh, I guess, advanced or complex frameworks like React. So I know you've you've also dabbled in Next.js as well. Uh, so I'd, I'd be curious your thoughts on that versus, say, like Gatsby and where it fits into the equation. Yeah, I, I think Next.js is really interesting. And I'm really excited to see how it keeps growing. I think the first time I tried it was earlier this year, maybe before that. And it, you know, it, it seemed nice, but it wasn't something that I wanted to put Gatsby down and immediately start using from all my projects. But now after seeing a lot of the development they've done on it and the APIs, the APIs they put for developing pages is just really powerful and feels right. Like uh, some of the, I'm not sure if you all are familiar, but uh, where you can define inside the components, the 
props so that you can make the uh, request for props uh, right on compile time. Having it right next to that code is really powerful and makes it, you know, the cognitive uh, load to try to think through those problems a lot nicer. So I'm just really excited to keep going, seeing where they go and the more powerful it becomes. I traditionally use a lot of the static website features, so not as much of the server side, but even that has really powerful things where it might not be static, but you're still doing a lot of cool things with the React kind of, or the Next.js node free rendering. So it's help me understand this. Next is basically static sites, but like I know a big component of what they do helps you with server-side rendering as well. So is it like, I, I, I know Next is like, like almost like React on steroids, right? Because they try to do a whole lot for you. But in my head, the way I try to logically keep track of it as someone that hasn't toyed with it before is it's basically like React with a bunch of stuff. But the biggest thing to me, at least, is like the server component. Like they're going to help you actually do some server-side rendering and stuff. Is, is my like mental uh, classification of that mostly correct? Yeah, I think that's pretty accurate. Like, I kind of see it as like a step above Create React, where you know Gatsby can kind of be similar, but I feel like it's kind of its own thing. Where Next.js feels more closely to developing like just a React application. But yeah, I think it was originally more heavy towards the server side aspects of it, which is, might be why I didn't pick it up as much. But they added those uh, static features, which really compelled me to want to use it. And also they do a lot of automatic optimization for static features on the backend. So the way I understand it is when you deploy to Vercel, like they're going to actually check if you're using any server-side capabilities. So you might be pushing it out, not knowing you're pushing it out static, and the entire site might be static if you're not using any of those capabilities, which is really cool. When you said deploy to, I missed the word you said after that. Uh, Vercel, uh, which is the company that makes um, Next.js. Oh, okay. So do they, they have previously Zite, if you're familiar with that. Okay, so do they handle like hosting for you as well? Is that like part of Next? I'm yeah, totally well, a noob, noob when it comes to this stuff. So, so they they work really nicely together, but they're still their separate things. Uh, so Vercel is kind of more along the lines of what Netlify is, where if you're familiar with Netlify, um, where you can push out static sites, but they also have the server rendering capabilities. So I'm not sure if they work with other. Uh, server-based frameworks than uh, Next.js. But with Next.js, they actually take that code that you develop in there and they turn it into probably function, uh, like Lambda functions that run that code each time it hits the server. I don't know the specifics behind that technical, so that was a little speculation. But when you push it out to Vercel, they handle all those optimizations for you. I don't have any sites hosted on Vercel. I think I had one that was hosted on Zite, which I guess is them since been moved over. Do you have any that you're doing on Netlify? Because I've heard a lot of good things about them for hosting as well. Yeah, I honestly, most of my projects are on Netlify. Um, I think some of them are on Vercel. And I'm not really trying to plant my flag on one versus the other. I think they both have a lot of benefits. I think Netlify is just a little bit easier to use for static sites. It's just getting from static site to deployed on the web is just so easy and simple. It's it's just impressive. Uh, some of the, my non-technical colleagues at work were able to do it very easily. And I think that speaks a lot of things about that. But both of them are kind of similar solutions that revolve around getting websites hosted and deployed. But things you also don't have to think about, like you might have to with an S3 AWS S3 approach, are the routing, uh, where they handle all that for you and they handle all the CDN stuff. Uh, and if you connect your domain uh, through their DNS, like they'll even create the certifications uh, so you have SSL. So all that's handled and it's like having a DevOps person without actually having a DevOps person. So as a front-end developer, it's so nice. 
Have you ever wondered if you could be offering a faster, less buggy experience for your customers? I mean, let's face it, the only way you're going to know that is by actually running it on production. So go figure it out, right? You run it on production, but you need something plugged in so that you can find out where those issues are, where it's slowing down, where it's having bugs. You just, you need something like that there. And Raygun is awesome at this. They, they just added the performance monitoring, which is really slick and it works like a breeze. I, I just, I love it. I love it. It's like, it's like you get the ray gun and you zap the bugs. It's anyway, definitely go check it out. It's going to save you a ton of time, a ton of money, a ton of sanity. I mean, let, let's face it. Grepping through logs is no fun and having people not able to tell you that it's too slow because they got sidetracked into Twitter is also not fun. So go check out Raygun. They are definitely going to help you out. There are thousands of customer-centric, customer-focused software companies who use Raygun every day to deliver great experiences for their customers. And if you go to Raygun and you use our link, you can get a 14-day free trial. So you can go check that out at reactroundup.com slash Raygun. Yeah, I have to say that was one of the things that was always really intimidating to me and still is today, like trying to set up HTTPS and get SSL certificates because I've I've heard and I've looked at like all the the written articles and the tutorials about how to set it up with Let's Encrypt and stuff like that. And it still just boggles my mind sometimes trying to understand how <laughs> how people did this before they had hosting companies that could do it for you because it's it just seems too complicated no for sure it's it's wild and the fact that we don't have to think about the servers we don't have to think about any of that is just it's amazing to see where that's come and i think that's really like part of the draw to the jam stack is that we can do these kind of things and not have to worry about that stuff because they optimize and automatically do all of it for you yeah one thing i'll toss into that bucket because you mentioned routing is like old school like Apache configuration files and like just any sort of server configuration files. I swear I have nightmares. Like, I don't know who invented the syntax for those things, but like you never felt confident that anything you were doing was going to work. You're probably going to break something. And then like, you couldn't really test it either. You just like throw it out there and go like, well, let me restart my entire server and just run some manual tests and see what happens. And then if it works, you ship it and try to just pretend you never had to do that and because it was awful mm-hmm. i don't remember the last time i thought about apache so that's interesting <laughs> <laughs> and then put an nginx in server in front of it. <laughs> it i think like it i like your point there though that that's sort of one of the appeals of the jam set because i remember years ago one of like the the web performance tips you would see were things like things for your apache config like saying like here's how you configure your cache headings and here's how you configure all these things and make sure you're doing gzip encoding. And you never see that on like tutorials anymore because I, people just sort of assume, well, something you're using is just doing the magic for you automatically, which is something I, I, I hadn't really thought about until you brought it up. But like a lot of these things, like because you are using somebody else's server that somebody else configures, you're sort of putting some trust on them in, in a good way to just take care of some of these things for you and like have a fast site by default. For sure. There's so many layers to that. So, you know, even compression, but there's also like cache control on like the headers and like all that stuff. There's so many different layers that you just don't really have to think about anymore, which makes it, you know, it's such a good thing for the web to help 
give people more of an opportunity to put things out there that they might not have had to before, uh, where they might not have had the chance before. Yeah. And I think there's some like, to get back to your point of like, knowing the platform versus because it, it's, it's tough, because like, there's some knowledge of, say, like knowing how HTTP headers work, or knowing how like gzip compression works at a high level. So I can see some benefit of saying like, oh, like, maybe people should manually configure that. But on the same time, I'm also conflicted because having done that back in the day and like completely forgotten how I did that back in the day, like part of me says like that was kind of sort of a wasted effort. And like, it's probably better off for web developers to like, like it's sort of like reinventing the wheel, right? Like you, there's some knowledge to, some benefit to knowing what's going on, but at the same time, it's... <laughs> it's a solved problem. Yeah, for sure. And if nothing else for being able to reminisce about it, right? Yeah. Uh, but no, I, I definitely think that there is some value in that. Uh, and I think that's part of like, you know, the bittersweet part of managing a legacy code base because you're still having to work manually with a lot of these pieces. And there's a lot of learning aspect of that that you might not get. So, you know, like, Bring back to Gatsby, like I, I've definitely written my fair share of manual webpack configurations. And while I definitely did not enjoy doing that, I feel like that gave me another level of understanding of what actually happens behind the scenes. Uh, so I know that, you know, it's a, it's a really nice optimized webpack configuration that's running this entire thing. So when I'm trying to, to debug or something, my application, I have a little bit more of an understanding of where I might look for something. That's a really good point because that's something that I've never learned the manual way and I feel it too because yeah. there there are times where like even though most of the time I'm using some tool that did webpack for me there's occasionally times where like something goes wrong and when it does I'm toast right like there's no way I'm actually going to dig into that whereas if my react app does something weird with the dom for example I can say oh I I did the dom for a decade, right? Like I, I can sort of have a high level idea of what's going on here and at least use that as a troubleshooting step. So same thing with cache headers, right? Like if something's like, I'm not getting, like I refresh my page and something doesn't come in, I at least have some basis of going like, okay, well, I know roughly how this works. So uh, I, I like your way of phrasing that because Webpack, maybe I should put Webpack config on my list of things to at least know the basics of. Yeah, no, it's interesting. And a lot of those times when you are trying to debug, it's like your your best shot is hoping that you figure out how to best Google it so that you can find somebody <laughs> else that ran into that same issue. Yeah, I did a tutorial once on Webpack a couple of years ago, which demystified it a lot. And I've forgotten pretty much all of what I learned. But at least, you know, there's some information floating around in the very back of my brain that if I needed to, I could probably figure it out again. But yeah, it, even just having a general understanding of the underlying things, I think, can be a huge help when you start to hit roadblocks, which everybody's going to at some point or other. For sure. And, you know, I think this this all kind of relates not just to, like, the Jamstack world, but also the serverless, because it, it makes me think of, like, we're... We, even though we have servers, like there's all these managed services now. So like even if it's uh, spinning up an EC2 instance, which you're still serving, spinning up a new server, it's still managed by AWS and the bits and pieces that you might have had to worry about before as like an infrastructure or DevOps person. You don't have to think about those things. You just need to spin it up and you know maybe you do load balancing and things like that, but you don't have to worry as much about those fine bits because you know AWS is going to handle it for you. I think it also enables people that are like just React or front-end people to get a bit further. Like I think at some point, if you're building a company, you're building something big, you are going to need to bring in some DevOps people. You're going to have a little bit more specialized concern. But I feel like 
years ago when I was first starting to do these things, I would hit this block, this roadblock right away. And I had no choice but to learn something like Rails or PHP or MySQL or something like that if I wanted to build something decent. Whereas today, it's like I could probably get by by just knowing JavaScript and maybe starting to learn just a very small amount about some of these services and get a lot further than people would have five, 10, heck, even two or three years ago. Yeah, and I, I, that leads me to remember when we were talking about uh, Vercel and Netlify, they also have function services. Uh, I'm not sure if you're aware. So you can spin up Lambda services just from the same repository that you're going to serve up your um, your static website. So if I wanted to have a server-side function that I create as an API, I just need to have a file in there that has the handler function, um, and then I can do whatever I want as if it's a server-side request, and they handle all of that for me. So is that even so, in like the same repo? Is this, there like a special folder or something you have to, to do? Or Yeah, so like there's a default folder. I, I believe there's a default folder, but you can also specify that in the configuration. And once you designate that folder, uh, they understand that that's where they're going to look for the functions, and then they deploy those differently, um, which... I believe Netlify uses AWS Lambda, or I think they might be multi-cloud. Depends on you know how far they got since I last looked. <laughs> yeah. uh, but essentially, it's an easy way to deploy a function, and you have that server-side uh, dynamic functionality that you need. Do you have any resources that you might recommend for learning about serverless? Because I've you know I'm aware of it, but my team and I have never really had the the opportunity to use it. But it's something that I really am interested in getting more into. Yeah, that's a good question. And I don't think off the top of my head, I can definitely find some because uh, my team uh, that I work with for work is very like uh, full in serverless. Uh, so I can absolutely find some that we can share with people. I think it also depends on kind of what kind of service uh, service you're looking for. So are you looking for like a serverless database or, you know, the Lambda functions? Because definitely can find some resources for Lambda functions. Um, but, you know. Yeah, I think that the Lambda functions are are interesting because, you know, serverless databases to me kind of feel very similar to ones that you would just host yourself. You know, you have you just have your connection string and then you're pretty much set up to go. But the Lambda functions that actually can do the stuff that you typically would have done in, a, in an Express app or, you know, on the, the node side of stuff is really interesting to me. It's kind of, it's like, how do you have this endpoint that you hit and it does everything that you previously would have had to depend on a full-time server for. Yeah, and it's it's also interesting because because of that architecture, you can also scale it. Like if you're not using a database that might, uh, like inside those Lambda functions that might, uh, you know, you might have to wait for those connections and such. But if you're not using something like that, those functions can quote scale infinitely, which is a buzzword that they like to use. But it's true because, you know, if you're dealing with an application that maybe it doesn't get a lot of traffic, but immediately you have an article that goes viral or a product that goes viral, like you're having real concerns there that you might not have thought about before. And that's where the term Reddit hug of death came from, right? It's people getting posted on Reddit and they their infrastructure unfortunately couldn't handle that. So, you know, that's another kind of baked in thing that's awesome about uh, Jamstack and the serverless world. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that throws me off is because I'm so ingrained to like, I have a server behind this, like in my head, that's just how I've done it for so many years that like some of these considerations are like completely new to me. Cause for me, it was always my performance in my backend was like basically linear based off whatever my server was doing. And so things like having like uh, it's, it's like cold start, right? Like, so if your function hasn't run in a while, there's like some considerations around that, that I know enough of to like say words that sound smart, but like not actually to use them in an intelligent way in a production app sort of thing. So 
I'd be curious as well, just because those things are like things that are a little bit scary to me in a sense of like, I understand the benefits of it, but like not totally uh, getting the model always messes with me a little bit too. Yeah. And that's funny because I, I still believe like wholeheartedly that one of the best things, even if you're not going to go down the path of using AWS or like any of the cloud services, I just, that's the one I work with the most. So that's why I keep saying it. But one of the most important things you can do for as a first step is simply learn all the acronyms. It is so <laughs> it gave me so much more capabilities to have discussions with the rest of my team, just simply knowing what services and what functionality they were talking about. But, you know, things like that, it's because people get so ingrained in those acronyms and then they don't realize that they're just throwing these things around <laughs> that nobody knows what they're talking about. We could sound smarter at parties too. That, that's exactly. always fun. <laughs> it also gets back to like what you said earlier. I liked a bit about uh, uh, just knowing what to Google, because I feel like that's also an underappreciated like developer 101 school or skill. Sorry. I feel like that's true for serverless as well, because if you know the terms, you kind of know what I need to look up to find help and resources and best practices and that sort of thing, too. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like they could teach it. Somebody could teach an entire course on how to Google things, right? <laughs> um, but it is important because there's so many people who are doing and we're fortunate that we can use the internet to find things that help us debug and whatnot. But, you know, it's not always easy to kind of get past of what you have in your mind that might be called something else. Like, I think a good example is Next.js. They, I think they call it uh, static. They call it static compiling in Gatsby world, but they call it something slightly different in Next.js world, which is fine, but it's just a different term that you might be searching for that might not come up in your search because you don't understand or you don't know that that's what they're calling it. So I'm curious, out of all the things we've talked about today, what's what's sort of next on your list? What is your your interest, the thing you're sort of passionate about looking into to covering or working with next? Yeah, so a project that I'm working on uh, is this little open source kind of uh, I don't know what to call it, but it's a, a WordPress next starter. Uh, and my goal is to get it completely statically compiled from WordPress, where there's definitely some examples of doing that with the Next.js server-side approach. And I know Gatsby even has a plugin that they do it automatically. But I think there's a cool kind of challenge in there where WordPress is very dynamic in nature and there's a lot of power behind it. And I'm not some... I'm not super passionate about WordPress itself, but I, I'm really enjoying this, trying to tackle this problem because I know WordPress is a huge CMS and there's a lot of great things about it as a publishing platform. So trying to be able to bring that into the static Jamstack world is interesting. It's been fun to kind of learn through. So would that be, so I got two questions about that. First, is that like just an open source project? Like are there, like who is behind that? Is it just a, a community project that's trying to make this happen? Are you talking about the starter? Yeah. Oh, that's just something that I created. And uh, Oh, nice. My, yeah, uh, a friend of mine, uh, Kevin Cunningham, has been working with me on it, um, helping get like wrangled the GraphQL. Because originally I was reaching out to the REST endpoints and recently I transitioned to the GraphQL because uh, because of how uh, the WordPress data is kind of managed, it just makes it a lot easier to be able to query a bunch of things to build those pages. But yeah, I just have a simple WordPress site set up, uh, you know, pretty Baked in, I actually use AWS Late Sale, uh, if you're familiar, which is an easy way to get a instance put out there. And I've just been developing the starter, trying to pull in all the bits and pieces that you would typically expect of a WordPress site. So one interesting challenge, for example, is uh, with WordPress, most sites usually have like a search capability, right? And they even have a REST endpoint that you can search on. But I wanted to do that client side because ultimately the goal is not to hit the server with the production application. Um, so what I'm doing is I'm doing that, I'm reaching out to grab all the posts and all the content at compile time, and I'm creating a little JSON index 
which then I load into the application for client-side search. So you can still have those search capabilities, but you're not actually reaching out to the server. So first of all, that's awesome. Uh, and I think it's a, <laughs> yeah. it's a, it's a cool project because there's, there's like what, 72 billion WordPress sites out there. So I think there's a small opportunity there that you could reach out to. And you actually kind of answered my second question because it sounds like you're, you're really trying to help people that want to keep using WordPress as like a CMS, right? Because you're storing your data there, but take advantage of like rendering using the best that like React and um, all of these like Next has to offer. Um, at least in my, did I interpret you correctly? Yeah. And I, it's interesting because a lot of the Jamstack, uh, the CMSs that are kind of coming out of the Jamstack world are amazing CMS solutions, but a lot of them are developer oriented. So you're kind of looking like a, a database in the cloud, which is okay. It works really well, but it's just not as great of a publishing experience for non-technical people. And I think that WordPress really strives at that. So I think it's just interesting to be able to give the best of both worlds where you still have that publishing experience, but bringing it static. So it's, you're able to leverage the best of both worlds there. Yeah. I love that idea because if you, you know, if you spin up something with Hugo or with Gatsby, it's like, unless you know, Markdown, you're going to need to connect this to some sort of an, a hosted backend, whether it's WordPress or Sanity or, you know, one of the millions of backends that we have. So it's awesome that you're just like giving them all of that already connected together. Because I think that that is a huge stumbling block for a lot of people. And it definitely has been for me when I was first getting started. And even now today, trying to connect it to something that I've not used before, it can really be frustrating. For sure. And you know, Markdown is awesome. I like using Markdown for writing. And I know uh, MDX, if you're familiar with it, it is great because you can use the React components in line, but it's still very developer oriented. And you know, if, if your project is just a bunch of developers managing the content, that's totally great. But when you're dealing with clients, that's often not the case. So it just makes it more of a struggle for them to actually use it. Yeah. And especially for people who are just trying to start up a company, you know, you've got maybe two people tops, one who's like your founder and one who maybe is doing like everything else. So if you're not a technical person, like you say, it's really tough or it can be. Absolutely. Yeah. And I know it's, it can be common in the dev world to sort of hate on things like web uh, WordPress a little bit too. <laughs> but like the thing is, it's, Actually, like it's it's stuck around because it's actually like genuinely helpful software to a lot of people, right? So even though people coming from our background might prefer to keep it simple and write like lightweight things in text editors, like it's certainly found a market niche. Um, it's like I said, it's certainly been used more than a few times. Yeah, and it's funny because there there's been a little bit of drama with uh, WordPress versus Jamstack lately in the Twitter sphere. Oh, but man. it is interesting. Yeah, it is interesting <laughs> though because there's. Uh, it's there's so many great aspects of both worlds that if we can bring them together and learn from each other, there's just so much more opportunity that we can make better things for the web and for the people trying to use it. Oh man, speaking of Googling, I just Googled Jamstack versus WordPress. I got something called Jam, Jam, uh, Jamstack versus WordPress, friends or foes? Oh, well, I haven't seen that. <laughs> this this but, is amazing. <laughs> but it, uh, there was a Jamstack conference yesterday and they actually had the co-founder of uh, WordPress and uh, Matt, I, I, I forget his last name, from uh, Netlify, the CEO, and they actually had a little fireside chat. And it was interesting. You know, it's, it seemed like sometimes it, it was just firing shots at each other, but it, it is <laughs> nice to see that there is discussion where everybody's trying to bring in the best um, to really push the community forward. Yeah, it's nice to know that, you know, there's more 
more options out there than just WordPress, which I think, like you said, kind of lifts everybody and makes them be better than they would have been without the competition. Yeah, absolutely. Well, cool. Is there anything that we haven't covered that you think, you know, that you'd like to leave us with, Colby? I think it's probably uh, talking a little bit more about the 50 React projects. Um, I think the interesting thing about that is how it is a bunch of projects for people to kind of learn by doing. Learn by doing is kind of my... Uh, my thing. I think it's really the best way for people to try to go out and learn new tools or really just become motivated. Because going back to finding that passion project, it is a way for people to get interested in their work. And once you're interested in their work, you're more likely to keep working on something and uh, try to understand the tools that go behind that. So um, the reason why I put that together is so that people had an opportunity to not think about, you know, what am I going to build next? Here's a list of 50 things you can build. Um, some ideas behind it and go off and build it. So um, I think that's really kind of one of the bigger takeaways of what I'm trying to help people do in the community. I really love that idea because I think that that's something that I struggle with all the time for side projects. It's like, well, I could try and build another to-do app with this new framework or something that I haven't built before, or I could not and just watch some tutorials and do something else. Absolutely. You know, there's a lot of great things about creating a to-do list, but it it's kind of boring when it's the only example you see over and over. Yeah. And we dropped the link to that in the show notes. So if you're listening to this and you want to check it out, uh, 50 React Projects, you can find it in the notes. Yeah. And the Jamstack handbook. I think both of yeah. those are super useful. Awesome. Thank you. Hey, folks, this is Charles Maxwood, and I just launched my book, The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. It's up on Amazon. We self-published it. I would love your support. If you want to go check it out, you can find it there. The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. Have a good one. Max out. Absolutely. So this is the portion of the show where we talk about picks. Um, and they could be something that you're using in real life that you think is great, uh, a show, a product, something that you found on the web that's super helpful or awesome. So the thing that I wanted to share this week was uh, rollerblade office wheelchairs. So I recently got a new office chair and it came with the typical little office wheels that you know, don't go anywhere, feel like they're going to break pretty much as soon as you add them to the chair. So I upgraded to a $25 pair of Brightfield Rollerblade office chair wheels, and they are awesome. <laughs> they are so smooth. My chair is so much better, and I would highly recommend this for anybody who's got a rolling office chair. Um, that's going to be my sick pick for this week. Uh, I can't speak to carpet because I'm on <laughs> hardwood floors, but I would I would assume that if you're on any kind of solid surface like that, that it's probably going to be pretty good. Do you have a fun set of colors on them? Because I'm totally picturing like <laughs> the old school like roller skates, sort of like like a bright pink or a, a neon blue sort of thing. And I hope they glow in the dark. Oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> that would be pretty sweet. I unfortunately just got the clear and black color combo, but I will have to check on the manufacturer's <laughs> website and see if you can get some of those sweet, sweet colors. <laughs> so that's going to be my pick for this week. TJ, what do you got for us? So I'm going to pick a service called HelloFresh. So it's just a meal delivery service. I might have actually picked it before in the past, but we've been using it quite a bit lately. And I, I think like I, I we picked HelloFresh, but there's other meal delivery services and I think they're all fairly similar. And I think what I like about it is if you're the type of person that likes to cook, but hates to shop for like ingredients or hates to like pick one recipe out where you need like something really sort of some sort of strange spice and you buy like 
the $5 container of it and you like sprinkle it on your thing once and then it sits in your cabinet until you go to clean it out like eight years later or something like that. It's kind of nice to be just shipped exactly what you need for a meal and to still get that chance to cook. And I think we've been using it more because pandemic just in the house a little bit more. So you just have a little bit more time for this sort of stuff. So we've been enjoying it, using it lately. So that is my pick. Nice. That's definitely a solid pick. I've tried um, Blue Apron in the past and was pleasantly surprised in the same way. There was like ingredients that I would never have picked out at the grocery store that I got to try out and turned out we really liked the flavors and the tastes of. Yep. You could probably try several of these things for a few weeks. They all have pretty generous, like get started with them. So you could probably play them off each other a little bit and like use a little bit here and there to see which ones you like. Yeah. We've done that in the past and we've actually kept the recipe cards so that we can still make the meals, but we would just shop for our own items at that point. Yep. That's it. (laughs) Cool. You got anything for us, Colby? Sure. I'll give you two things. Uh, So the first thing is kind of a fun one. So there's this Netflix show called Julie and the Phantoms and it's, real silly and real cheesy but it's about a girl who uh, kind of finds music again through this uh, ghost band that kind of passed away and then came back to play with her it's it's a lot of fun as i said it's cheesy but you know sometimes we need that we're in the middle of a pandemic we just need something fun but the other thing is uh, this uh, chrome extension well actually it's a browser extension because they're coming out with more uh, browsers but it's called toucan and what it does is it swaps words out in the middle of web pages and it helps you learn new languages by kind of swapping out those so for example if there's uh i'm looking at the website if it says uh if there's street food for example it would swap out the word food for the language that you have selected so in my instance i'm trying to learn portuguese and it would show the word in Portuguese where I can then hover over it and see what the actual word is to try to help, you know, get used to those, um, those words and that language. That's awesome. I've never heard of anything like that, but that seems really cool. Yeah. It's, it's a nice way to kind of like learn while you're browsing the web and doing something you normally do. And it's not enough that you're not going to be able to understand what the page says, because that could be really troubling if the, page <laughs> right. is the other language, but like, it's just enough where you can use context clues to try to help fit it in and understand what it's, uh, you know, kind of help learn little by little. Very cool. That's, that's an awesome idea. I've never thought of that, but I like it. Cool. Well, thanks for, you know, coming on with us today. And thanks for talking, you know, the amount of stuff that you have the talks that you've given, the books that you've written, and all the stuff that you've done is really, really awesome. And I think it's going to be hopefully very inspirational for other people who are either starting out or, you know, trying to get re-inspired for things to do and build with React and the Jamstack. Thanks. Yep. Yeah, that's that's the hope. I, it makes me really happy to see people kind of learn these new things and, you know, get inspired themselves and motivated to put things out on the web. Um, so I I really hope that that's helping and just really excited to see what more people build with those tools. So if people want to get in touch with you, where can they find you? Anywhere at Colby Fayok. Uh, I try to keep really consistent with that. Um, so specifically Twitter, I'm probably more active on or, um, you know, colbyfayok.com. Nice. Well, thanks again for joining us and we will see everybody next episode. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Hi, everyone. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.